streets paved with gold Lifted some stones, saw the skin and bones Of a city without a soul I stopped outside a church house Where the citizens like to sit They say they want the kingdom But they don't want God in it Yeah, I went with nothing Nothing but the thought of you I went wandering Live from the Mecca of Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter, where Mormonism meets Biblical Christianity face-to-face, -face, and I'm your host, Sean McCraney. Heart of the Matter can be seen here on television through streaming video at www.hotm.tv, in our archives, at the same website, all over the web, especially at youtube.com. We've been updating our technology. Uh, we're making some huge strides, and it's taken a lot of work, so... We've been backlogged and you've been asking, but it's, it's going to be better. The, the screen's bigger. It's going to be a clearer picture once we're done. Uh, so uh, keep tuning in. Um, go to hotm.tv and you can see the improvements happening. It's that time of year again where Aletheia Ministries supports the Salt Lake Rescue Mission and their need for two main items. Uh, new or slightly worn winter coats for men and brand new packs of socks. No used socks. Brand new packs of socks and or new or gently used uh, winter coats for men. If you are inclined to help those in need with these items, just bring them to uh, the lobby here at the station at 314 South Redwood Road and deposit them in a box that will be there and we'll give them to the rescue mission on your behalf. We had a great response last year, and uh, Derek, uh, he was in uh, some stores and says they are completely out of winter coats in like the, the uh, thrift stores and things, so they're really needed now. It's getting cold, so uh, if you wanna help us with that, go for it. Almost one year ago, we premiered Girl, a short uh, film about the drama and trauma of premarital sex. On Monday, December 5th at 7 p.m. at the Gateway Movie Theaters, join us for the premiere of Boy, the second of this three-part cinematic series. The premiere is free, and we will be screening Girl Before Boy to remind you of what everything, what's happening with it. Take a look at Boy's clip.
while everybody's invited, we especially invite youth groups, uh, teens, uh, 12 and, and up, etc. Um, we advise you to arrive early. Mark your calendars Monday night, December 5th, 7 p.m. sharp uh, at the Gateway Movie Theaters, a re-showing of Girl and the premiere of The Other Side of the Story, Boy. Have you got a copy of the docudrama A Mormon President? It can be yours for a minimum gift of 25 clams to Aletheia Ministries. Additionally, we're doing a pre-sale offering of our newest book, uh, which we believe is our most utilitarian book, and it's called Where Mormonism Meets Biblical Christianity Face-to-Face, -face, an A-D-A -A to Z doctrinal comparison between Mormonism and Christianity. It's 700 pages of great information, including logical arguments regarding the differences between Mormonism and Christianity on 47 topics. Before the book hits the bookstores, uh, we are offering it to our viewers at a discount. The bookstore price, or if you order it online, is going to be $34.95, not including shipping and handling. You can get one mailed to your home before Christmas for a total price of $30, shipping included. Uh, to order uh, the video, A Mormon President, or Mormonism A to Z, or Girl, or any of the other books, go to www.hotm.tv. If you're uh, not internet savvy, write us at 4760 Highland Drive, number 515, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84117. And we make sure you list what product you want, and we'll get them out to you. All right, for the fourth straight week, we are taking the time to personally extend an open invitation to anyone who qualifies. Uh, they can have one full hour here on this set to explain what they would like to explain in defense of Mormonism. This offer goes to any official representative of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, First Presidency, Quorum of the Twelve, General Authorities, Mr. Scott Gordon of FAIR and the New Mormon Defense League, LDS Internet Defender Jeff Lindsay, and or the Book of Mormon Answer Man. We also invite any BYU professor of religion. One full hour to present what the world is misunderstanding about Mormonism. Consider yourselves invited to sit here in this very chair all alone and present the truths. I won't even be here. Now, friends, ask yourself this. How come nobody's taking us up on this? Uh, I mean, once their words are on the air, I can't change or alter them. I can't edit them. Uh, they will be there. They have a full 60 minutes free to explain what the world is not understanding about Mormonism. How come they're not rushing for the opportunity? The reason that they aren't taking advantage of this, my friends, is because they cannot present the truth. It's impossible for them to present the truth. Let me tell you why. If they actually teach the truth about Mormonism relative to salvation, soteriology, the ontology of God, polygamy as an eternal principle, the Jesus-Satan relationship, it would be counter to their public uh, relations campaigns and therefore it would embarrass the church. If they uh, obfuscate the truth and we will know that they are lying and that they are clouding the issue and we will call them out on it in the subsequent weeks, which would really embarrass them. So they're stuck and they will never, ever, take an opportunity like this. It won't happen. 
So next time you're online and some blowhard starts talking about how Mormonism is misunderstood or that I'm a, Sean McCraney is a liar, call him out, tell him, hey, there's an invitation for you to go. He won't even be there. You can present all the things that the world doesn't understand. If you're telling the truth, I'll just say, yeah, that's true. That's what Mormonism believes. But if you lie, you'll be called on it. How come you won't take this opportunity? You can be seen all over the world through our uh, live streaming video. And many people watch. Come on. How about a moment from the word? We finished going through the book of Matthew, sort of skimming through and just kind of comparing and contrasting what the Bible teaches versus what Mormonism believes. Tonight we're going to do the same thing and we're going to begin in the Gospel of John. And we're going to begin with the first and second verse. We're going to make it really simple. It says in the first verse, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made by Him, and was not anything made and without him, excuse me, was not anything made that was made. Now, let's just read what it says. In the beginning, these are the same words Moses uses in writing Genesis. John the Beloved does the same. This means before anything, anything, anything was, uh, at the start, way, way back, in the beginning, he says, was the word. The word. In the Greek, it's the logos. Uh, it's the mind and will of God. The Logos is God's expressions, his thoughts, his very words, his vision, his love, his justice, his mercy, his hope. In the beginning was the whole expression of God is another way to say it. In the beginning was the Logos. And the Logos, the word was with God, and the word was God, John says. All things, he says, all things were made by him, meaning the word, meaning the Logos. All things were made by the Logos. And without him was not anything made that was made. Listen. And the word, which is God who made all things, and the word was made flesh. Verse 14. This Logos, which was God, in the beginning created all things, was made flesh. And dwelt among us. If you see Jesus in any other light than what John the Beloved wrote here, you do not know the real Jesus and you've been lied to. You have uh, essentially been taught a fraud. Jesus was from the beginning. Jesus was and always has been God. Jesus created all things. Without Jesus was not anything made that has been made. Jesus created Satan, an angel that fell. He is not brothers with Satan. And Jesus was made flesh and dwelt among us. With that, let's have a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we need you. I need you. Uh, be with us, Lord, wherever we are. If we're searching for truth, uh, open our eyes and hearts to know it. And uh, give people the will and drive to, to seek you with all their heart. We pray for our audiences, our volunteers, our staff, whatever is going on, Lord, we put it in your hands. Thank you, in Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we mentioned in the chronology of Joseph and his golden plates that he said he received 
the buried golden plates in September of 1827. We explained how a story that started as buried treasure kind of morphed into a story about a historical record that was buried. And in the future, we're going to show how that story then morphed into it being a sacred religious text. Tonight, before we delve into Joseph actually starting to translate the plates, there is one more topic we need to discuss relative to it. What Joseph Smith and Mormonism thereafter refer to as the Urim and Thummim. Now, the topic is an amalgamation of information, and when you read through church history, it can get quite confusing. The reason for this is because throughout LDS history, members of the church have referred both to the Elton John glasses that were in the stone box as the Urim and Thummim, and the peep stone that Joseph used to find things as the Urim and Thummim. So because of this, it's hard to tell sometimes what is being talked about. And so this led to, uh, led to confusion. To make it simple for you, just understand this. Latter-day Saints, because we have seen this in history and how they've done it, believe there are many Urim and Thummims. There was not just one, okay? So maybe the first thing to consider is where the heck did this word Urim and Thummim come from? It sounds like, you know, I'm not telling you what it sounds like, but uh, it comes from the Bible. And as Joseph was wont to do, he took something that nobody really knows the exact meaning or form of, and he, well, he gave it meaning and form. How? He claimed that in the box with the gold plates were other items. He said there was the sword of Laban, that's a Book of Mormon character, and his sword was in there. He said there was a breastplate that was made of metal, and, uh, and then there was two stones which were set together with some metal rims, kind of like in, in the figure eight, like the Elton John glasses, and they would be attached to that breastplate, and those together, understand, together they make the Urim and Thummim. Now, I've always maintained that Joseph Smith is a synthesizer of information. He created very few things out of his own imagination. But boy, when he could tap into something, he would just take it and expand it with this magnificent imagination. He did this with the view of the Hebrews. He did it with biblical polygamy. He did it with Freemasonry. He did it with the temple. And he did it when it comes to what the Bible says was the Urim and Thummim. In the Old Testament, the singular high priest um, for the children of Israel would wear what scripture called a breastplate across his chest. It was about 10 inches across and 10 inches down, and it had 12 stones in it, uh, three rows of four or four rows of three, I don't recall. And each of those stones represented the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, when Joseph read stones, high priest, I mean, his imagination started going, I'm sure. And the, um, once this breastplate was in place for the high priest of the children of Israel, um, the Urim and Thummim were somehow deployed or uh, used. What they were, we really don't know. But most people who study and know it think it was like a couple of stones, a couple of rocks. And they were kept with this breastplate. And I'll tell you what they were for in a minute. Now, they would tie this breastplate to the ephod or ephod, which was like a robe or the gown that the high priest would wear. The Hebrew word thummim 
is widely considered to mean innocent. And the word urim is traditionally meant to mean lights. And uh, in consequence, urim and thummim has tr traditionally been translated to mean lights and perfections. Okay? Um, these meanings are reflected in the Masoretic text of the Old Testament. And it would, not be a mystic, it would not be a mystery to a family like the Smiths who were mystical in their thinking and who read the Bible to read about the Urim and Thummim and under, try to figure out what they were, okay? Uh, many scholars today believe, however, that the Urim actually comes from the Hebrew word Aram, which means curses, and that the Urim and Thummim essentially mean to, cursed or faultless, okay? And in reference to the guilt or innocence of a person or a nation or a situation. And it is believed that the high priest would put on the, the, the breastplate, that Urim and Thummim would come out, and they almost think it was like, uh, uh, like the casting of lots, and they would put it down, and it would tell whether something was faultless, perfect, good, light, or cursed. And that is the meaning behind the words. Uh, Innocence or guilty. So most Bible scholars also believe that the Urim and Thummim worked in conjunction, uh, worked by just saying yes or no to something. It didn't give a whole bunch of explanation. Yeah, we think he's guilty, but there's an extenuating circumstance to this, the Stones would say. No. It was merely yes or no, and it would convey whether the person was innocent or guilty. There's only two occasions in the Bible where this doesn't seem to be the case, but even when those are examined, we think that it still is. Okay. In Old Testament times, God's will was determined. He spoke and did all sorts of things with the children of Israel. The Urim and Thummim were one through the high priest. Laying out a fleece was another way. Casting lots was another way. Dreams, speaking donkeys, wild weather, other signs, all over the place. Now listen. Since Jesus came and paid for all sin and ascended, since the Holy Spirit fell and filled people with the Holy, filled believers with the Holy Spirit, since the apostles came and wrote by inspiration what Jesus trained them to write, um, there is really a very limited need, if any need at all, for these uh, extraneous things to help reveal God's will. We have the Holy Spirit, God in us. We don't need to cast lots and use Urim and Thummims or whatever. To suggest that a Urim and Thummim was used to translate ancient texts is to accept a synthesis that Joseph Smith uh, gave to the world. He did it by taking his Old Testament knowledge that there was a thing called the Urim and Thummim and a breastplate and he combined it with his peeping it through stones and his ability to see and translate and look into things, which was part of his uh, family's folklore practice. I am certain when Joseph decided to make the gold plates um, a religious book, the Urim and Thummim uh, took place and he included the peep stones in his amalgamation of what the biblical Urim and Thummim were. According to a number of people who saw Joseph's Urim and Thummim, and according to Joseph Smith's own description of them in the History of the Church 135, this is what they look like. Now, I, I, today, I got these materials, and I did this only today did I do the fabricating. And I wanted to show you that this is one day about four hours worth of work. 
The only thing that was not done by hand and with manual tools was the soldering of this piece on there, but otherwise everything else was done by, by hand and by me, okay? And so here I am an idiot and I made myself a breastplate. Now if you cover this with cloth and you say, here's the breastplate, oh, I feel it, I see it, okay? I could have, if I spent a year on this thing, I could have really decorated it up with a lot of intricate designs and hammered them in, but this is the breastplate. Now Joseph's description of the breastplate, he has an arm come out of the thing. Now the arm for this thing is, its purpose is to hold the, the glass, the so, so here are the goggles, they, they kind of attach to this, breastplate up, and Joseph would thereby translate the golden plates. Now, no one saw him actually use them and translate using them, but they knew he said he did. Now, I just want you to look at this picture. I want you to look at this picture. This is 1823 through 1829, and I wish it fit me better, but this is Joseph's description of the Urim and Thummim, okay? Now, uh, let's go on. We need to go to a break because my mic is malfunctioned because of the Urim and Thummim's power. So we're going we're gonna to come back in just a second. Check out our ambassadors. We'll see you in one second. Oh, that's short. You got a battery in this? Yeah. Take. All right, we're back. Now, so I want you to just take a minute and think about that. I was wearing the, the, the get-up for a second. Two men, Moroni and, and Mormon, have been abridging a record onto gold plates from hundreds and hundreds and thousands, maybe, of, of plates. They have been carrying these plates around somehow in ancient America, and they've been abridging them onto these golden plates. 
Uh, none of which these other plates has anybody ever found. Forget the golden plates. They were taken up. But where's the other ones? I mean, that they took them from. And they make an abridgment on the gold plates in a language called Reformed Egyptian, which no language expert or scholar has ever heard of. And Moroni buries the record while being surrounded by dead and dying bodies, a quarter of a million of them on a single hill near Joseph Smith's home. Clad in metal and wearing uh, and, and bearing weapons, all 600 A.D., not one piece of metal or evidence from that has ever been found on the Hill Cumorah. And as an angel, the same Moroni comes back in 1823 and tells Joseph where he had buried these plates. And Joseph at that time was very actively involved with his father and brothers in searching for buried gold with a stone in a hat documented and verified, even arrested for it, and convicted. And when the kid finally gets hold of these uh, plates, they come with a set of these. Okay? Uh, I don't know what you need. I really don't know what you need to say something's wrong in Denmark. Nothing wrong with Denmark. Um, does it sound like God at work? The Holy Spirit fell 1,800 years earlier, and God is really going to have a guy in the 1820s use a get-up like that? By the way, this is interesting, but the Book of Mormon explains, where, or Joseph Smith explains in the Book of Mormon where these things came from. Do you know where they came from according to the Book of Ether? Jesus himself made them, gave them to a guy named the brother of Jared, 600 years before Jesus was born, the brother of Jared used them to interpret different things and passed them down through Messiah and other people till finally Moroni took them, buried them, and Joseph Smith in 1823, uh, 1827, got a hold of them. I don't know. I mean, people call and they want to talk about grace and works with me. How about something just like this? I mean, let's just start off with something simple, okay? Before you attacking me for mocking Joseph and the Urim and Thummim story, remember a couple things. Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought, pointed out way back in 1986 that Joseph Smith worked prior to and after the Book of Mormon coming out, not only for his parents around the farm, but, quote, in blessing crops, finding lost articles, predicting future events, prophesying, and using divine rods, and seer stones, end quote. It's only natural that in conjuring up his fancy tales that he would think that these plates would have to be accompanied by some seer stones in order to be able to translate their cryptic language. What is both revealing and unknown to most Latter-day Saints is church history verifies, and we're going to cover this next week, verifies that Joseph Smith used his seer stone in a hat. He wore a white stovepipe hat. It was probably dirty though. And he would put his seer stone in and he would go around for many, many years with his dad and he would pretend to be able to see buried treasure. It was with this and this that Joseph Smith was able to find and locate the golden plates. They don't, Mormons don't understand that that is part of history. Don't believe me? Listen to Martin Harris said, Joseph described the manner of his finding the plates. He found them by looking into the stone found in the well of Mason Chase. The family had likewise told me the same thing, end quote. 
For those of you who think that this is unreliable, let's listen to what Brigham Young said. Hosea Stout, a faithful Latter-day Saint, proudly wrote in his journal this. President Brigham Young exhibited the seer stone which the prophet Joseph discovered the plates of the Book of Mormon to the regents this evening, that was in 1844 that he wrote that. As we've said many times on earlier shows, Joseph used this same stone and this same hat to translate the whole of the Book of Mormon. His wife, Emma, said, listen, a quote from Joseph's wife, who was a witness. Now, the first that my husband translated by the Urim and Thummim, this, was that part that Martin Herrett lost, 116 pages. After that, he used a small stone, not exactly black, but was rather dark in color. So his own wife affirms that the first 116 pages Joseph used, he used his prop. And then when Martin Harris lost those, and Joseph said, oh, all is lost, all is lost, and God has taken the Urim and Thummim from me, and he returned them later, Joseph then went to using this. Why? Because he was despondent over this get-up. It wasn't working. He'd lost all the work, so he was going to make it easier on himself. And he was going to implement this. Pretty soon, this even gave way to nothing. And he stood and translated the Book of Mormon just by speaking it from some place like behind a curtain while the plates are in another part of the, of the town. you got to understand the con, that, that the mind of a con. They go the easiest route to be able to... Perpetrate the con. They don't keep up the most difficult. They take the easiest route, and as long as people are accepting it, they'll keep making it easier and easier upon themselves. Okay? So we have witnesses that say Joseph first used the Elton John glasses and the breastplate for the first 116 pages, and after those pages were lost, he only used his personal peep stone to translate or nothing at all. We're going to talk about this more in um, uh, weeks to come. One more thing. Lucy Smith, Joseph's mother, said about the Urim and Thummim, I have seen and felt also the Urim and Thummim. They resemble two large bright diamonds set in a bow of a pair of spectacles. My son put them over his eyes when he reads unknown languages, and they enable him to interpret them in English. You know, it just makes me smile. Uh, it, it, I my son would put these things over his eyes and then he could bring unknown languages in, in English. Uh, if it wasn't so sad, if the fallout wasn't so great, if so many people weren't deluded and in bondage, I would be in hysterics right now. Uh, here's another quote from her. I found that the Urim and Thummim consisted of two smooth three-cornered diamonds set in glass and the glasses were set in silver bows which were connected to each other in the same way as old-fashioned spectacles. Uh, why did Joseph Smith stop using the Urim and Thummim even though God gave them back to him? Because, my friends, they were props. They were never, ever necessary to translating. I mean, think of the story. The Book of Mormon says Jesus Christ himself made these, gave them to the brother of Jared, who handed them down, who handed them down to Messiah, who handed them down, who handed them down to um, uh, Moroni, and Moroni puts them into the thing, and Joseph Smith has delivered them, and he doesn't even use them to translate the Book of Mormon. I mean, can you see what the man was about? In 1954, President Joseph Fielding Smith admitted that the LDS Church still has Joseph Smith's personal peepstone. 
I wonder if that would be of benefit to a Mormon president. With that, let's, uh, let's open up the phone lines, 801-973-8820, 801-973-TV20. Call, uh, if you're LDS, we would prefer to hear from you because your stuff is most interesting. And let's go to the phones. We have Paul. Paul, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi, Sean. Hi, Paul. I hope I didn't call at the wrong time. You called at a good time. I ta- Just one second, Paul. I spoke to Paul on the phone privately the other day. He had called the station last week when he couldn't get on, and he had some things to say to me. And I said, why don't you call back? This isn't set up. He, he, he just explained his heart to me. And I said, why don't you call and share this with the audience? So go ahead, my brother. Okay. I, I'm, uh, I'm still finding my way, hopefully, to Christianity. I, about a year ago, I had to, I left the LDS church because uh, through this show and through through my own just feelings, uh, the LDS church was basically a church built by man, and it teaches that you, through works alone on this earth, you can make it back to heaven, and I had a hard time with that, and a lot of doctrinal issues and I uh, since then as I've uh, been reading the Bible and praying and talk louder Paul okay since and since I've been reading the Bible and praying I've I've have come to a realization that you can only be saved through Christ alone and in his hands. Uh, so heart, tell me, tell the audience about what the problem you were uh, speaking with me about. The heart, the hardest thing is I, I, I'm divorced and I just have my, my siblings and my mom and dad and uh, I had to tell them and I, my parents of course didn't like it and I, at family outings from then on, I felt unwelcome. I wasn't treated badly, but I was treated differently. Uh, And uh, it's hard, and you feel like you're alone. Even church members walking around, the neighborhood, uh, a lot of them don't wave to me anymore, and some I've known for over 10 years, and the LDS church builds such a, uh, it's almost an addiction that you want that love so much. Paul, I really appreciate what you've said because we're going to use it now with some other things that I have in front of me. And uh, I really appreciate you taking the time. We're having some trouble with the audio, so I'm not sure it's going to be as effective as we want. But hey, thanks for your talk and prayer. You're welcome, my brother. You hang in, okay? You keep trusting the Lord. I will. Thanks. I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. 
On the on here on the screen, it says Greg wants to know how long did it take you to get rid of the LDS train of thought? It took himself 30 years. In front of me, I have an email I got today from Bev. She says she's come out to see that uh, Mormonism is not true. She's in a relationship with the Lord. She's trying. She says, but. At times, I still get a little moment where I catch my breath and say to myself, but what about this and that which is taught in the church? Did you go through this? Listen to what she says. I pray and feel joy and peace when this happens, but somewhere deep inside of me, I truly feel like because I have let it go, I am going to go to hell. Uh, do you have any suggestions? I feel like a baby now in learning of Jesus' true gospel. Um, I want you to know Bev and, and Dave and uh, Paul and all the rest of you out there, this is a product of, of the Mormon system and their methods. This is why it is so sinister. If you were a Baptist or if you were a Presbyterian and you decided, I don't like being a Baptist anymore, I'm going to go to being a Presbyterian, you could make that change with very little ripples. There might be some liturgical things they do differently, but bottom line, all Christian faiths believe Jesus is God in the flesh. Salvation comes by grace through faith. The Bible is his inerrant word. And, uh, and all those basic core issues. Mormonism, it makes you think that if you don't embrace Mormonism, you are going to hell. And it makes... It reaffirms that by this community when things in your life start going downhill, when your neighbors do stop waving to you, when your family doesn't treat you the same. And so you add that stuff into your own feelings from what everything you've been taught, and the road is extremely difficult. My heart breaks for you. All we can do is pray and, and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ that he will deliver you and get in his word. I cannot stress enough of how important being in his word is and then following up with getting involved in a local Christian church that teaches the Bible, that has fellowship, and you move on. The Bible is clear. In order to get the junk out of the brain, it has to be washed out, and it's washed out by the word going in. It's the only way. So when people ask me, how long did it take you? It takes a long time. Even today, I'll find myself using phrases from Mormonism, which are completely counter to the Bible. I don't mean them, but they're just part of us. Okay? But it, there is hope at the end of the tunnel. And it's worth it to know the only true and living God. So don't give up. We're going to go to uh, Parker in Salt Lake City, first time caller. Parker, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi, Sean. Hi. Um, well, I just... I want to thank you for taking my call. I I just been having a a question about um, Mark uh, twenty nine. It, it seems to be a a, a a typical LDS apologetic response for um, justifying their uh, testimony um, given to them by by the Holy Ghost about the Book of Mormon and 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 all other you know. What's the reference again, Parker? Excuse me? What's the reference again? Mark 29. It's, it, it's about um, it's, it's Jesus saying, but what do you, but, sorry, but what do you, but who do you say that I am? And um, it was a question to Peter. He says that he is the Christ. Right. And, and so the the, ar the argument that I, I get in a lot about is, you know, talking to them about them not being Christian. 
they just can't wrap their minds around that. So I get into the discussion about, you know, this is the Christ that people believe in or that Christians believe in in the Bible, and it's a different Christ. And I, I go through all, all these these references in, in the Bible and even in their own scripture, but it doesn't convince them because they always refer to... Um, I couldn't find the other scripture, but it says that flesh and blood... That's not revealed it to thee, Simon Barjona. Yeah, there we go. That, that's the, a, a, a different scripture. There's three interpretations of those passages, and it's not Mark 29 because Mark only has 16 chapters. Okay. So it's probably in Matthew you're referring to? Yeah, Matthew. That's yeah. It, it, the Catholics say... That, that, you know, it's not flesh and blood that has revealed that I am the Son of God to you. It's by the Holy Spirit. Right. I don't know how to counter that. I'm wondering if you may have any in, insight to that, any scripture references I can use? We do. And we covered this in a show in 2010. Um, the best thing to get the soundest uh, response to it is to just email me, uh, Sean at Aletheia Media, and we'll forward you the notes from that, and it will give you all the response so that you can read it over and over and then use it when you talk to them because their interpretation of it is uh, is totally twisted, and it has nothing to do with all the other things about Mormonism. You know, uh, but so I don't have a really solid response to you right now, but go, email us and we'll send it out to you in a, te in a uh, written form. Okay. Okay, man, thanks so much. Hey, thank you, Sean. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. We're going to go to uh, Jason in Salt Lake City. He's a first-time caller. Jason, you're on On The Matters. Oh, hi, hi Sean. Hey, uh, uh, I've lived in Utah my whole life, I've, and I wanted to ask a question about uh, uh, how the Mormons, uh, about Joseph Smith in, in particular, about polygamy. Okay. Uh, can you <laughs> have, has the... Has the LDS Church basically, uh, uh, have, have they admitted, I guess, from day one that Joseph Smith was a polygamist? If so, how many wives did he have? Or, did, or was there ever a time when they didn't uh, admit that he was a polygamist? Oh, yeah. Uh, and how many, and how many wives? Because I remember as a young, I'm, about, I'm in my 50s, and when I was a young, having lived in Utah my whole life, when I was a young kid, I remember them saying that, Joseph Smith wasn't a polygamist, um, but I just wondered again: was he a polygamist, and how many wives did he have? And did the, has the Mormon Church always admitted that? And if if not, why? Um, my mic is on. Uh, hold on, we're having an audio problem. That's because my mic fell down. All right, how's that? Sorry. I'm just going to hold it because I'm going to hand it off to somebody anyway. Listen, um, Parker, Mormonism uh, throughout the, like, the uh, 20th century, 1900 through 19-whatever, 80, 85, they never, ever would touch on Joseph Smith's polygamy. Once the manifesto came out, they didn't touch on it. They acted like he never practiced it, and uh, they kind of swept it under the rug. And because of the Internet and because of greater research, more and more people are, uh, have discovered absolutely the contrary. And so they've had to admit it. Uh, Todd Compton's In Sacred Loneliness, written by an LDS author, uh, it proves at least 33 secret wives Joseph Smith took. Um, with, uh, I can't remember what percentage, uh, being married to other men at the time. And 15%? 
11 women being married uh, to other men at the time, and then many of them uh, being under the age of 19 when Joseph was in his 30s and even 40s. So, I mean, he, he was a duplicitous man, and the LDS Church has been duplicitous in hiding this from its members. They'll use Brigham Young and say, yes, Brigham was, because they can't hide the lion house down there in the center of the town. But it actually all came from Joseph. And so uh, it wasn't readily taught, but it certainly is known today. Does that help? Okay, he's got his TV on. We're going to go on. Robert, I want to invite Robert up here. Can we take a wide shot? Robert uh, Verdon, he's a walking encyclopedia on things like this. And I didn't provide our caller with a good explanation of the passage he was asking of when uh, Jesus said that. Robert, uh, a two-minute summary. Of Matthew 16? Yes. Um, well, I'm not the, holding this for you. You hold okay. it. Okay. The rock is, uh, well, there's Petra and Petros. Uh, upon this rock, that's Petra. I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Thou art Peter, that's Petros. Um, but it's when they say, flesh and blood has not yeah, revealed this. Yeah, that's a good you. one, because my father, flesh and blood has not revealed this unto thee, but my father, which is in heaven, my father is not flesh and blood. God is spirit, John 4, 24. So God the Father uh, is a non-corporeal. He's non-body. He doesn't have a body. So let me so. stop you one second. So in one sense, you can use that to prove when Jesus says flesh and blood has not revealed it to you, you say to the LDS person, uh, you say to the LDS person, listen, that just shows you that the God you say you worship in a body of flesh does not have it because Jesus himself said uh, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father, which is in heaven, who is a spirit. That's the first point. How yeah. about their take about, um, you know, it's by revelation, Peter, that you receive the this. Rock of revelation. They call it the rock of revelation. First Corinthians 10, 4, the rock that followed the children of Israel in the forest uh, in the wilderness was Christ. It's crystal clear. So the rock... Two different places in Matthew 8, 16, 18, and, and 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, Christ himself is the rock. And it's not the rock of Revelation. The rock is referring to a person, Christ himself, not some source of information like the Mormon church would, Mormon leaders would have you believe. That's a false doctrine. Would the you Bible, say that the Old clearly Testament, Christ is the rock. Sorry. Would you say the Bible also teaches that... Uh, uh, Jesus is the rock throughout the Old Testament as well? Absolutely. The rock is Christ himself in the Old Testament and New Testament both. Round of applause for Robert Verdon. Okay, um, let's go to the next call. Sorry, we've, we're having some issues. I think it's this dang Urim and Thummim on my desk. Uh, we're going to go to uh, Richard in Ogden. Richard, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi, Sean. Hello, Richard. This is Richard Vigil calling. I wanted to tell you, I met you at one of the churches down in Sunset. Okay. I wanted to tell you how good of a job you're doing. I'm not a Mormon or anything, but I love the way you put on your show, and you don't believe in Mormonism. Well, thanks so much, Richard. God bless you, my brother. Could I get one of your books? <laughs> Which one do you want? As long as it believes in God. Which book do you want? It don't matter. Just send me any of them. Okay. Stay on the phone. We'll get your address and we'll send it to you. Thank you, Sean. Okay. Hold on. God bless. God bless you. Bye.
He's smart. You butter someone up and then you ask him for something. <laughs> We're going to go to Matthew in Elko, Nevada. First time caller. Matthew, you're on Heart of the Matter. Matthew, you're on the air. Hey, how's it going today? Good. How are you? I'm pretty good. So I've just had a curiosity for a while in my life, younger life. I was a, a Mormon. Um, and yet it was always the smaller hypocrisies in the church that tended to make me wonder. Um, and it wasn't until just recently I was doing a paper for actually my high school a couple of years back that I ran into the issue of um, Mormons own, the Mormon church owning the Coca-Cola company. Yeah. Um, my issue with that comes in when, as a Mormon, you know, they were always telling me, you know, caffeine's bad. You know, you can't, you can't drink even coffee. You know, and I never really understood it, but... Um, for me, it was like, you know, when you read the Bible, constantly it comes up, you know, don't don't do anything that will cause your Christian brothers to stumble, you know. And I mean, it's just a constant thing in the Bible. Well, how then can a church that, you know, claims that this stuff is so bad own the company that sells it? You, you know, the, uh, the church, a couple things quickly, Matthew. The church owning, owning the uh, Coca-Cola shares of their stock they will put that off as being investments that they have nothing control of, that their financial portfolio guys are picking and choosing for them. But we don't even know that that's true anymore. I'm not sure that they own a corporate, that they've, I think they divested themselves of all that about 20 years ago. So I think that's a, a foregone conclusion. But you do make a good point. And that is if they claim that it is bad and they claim it's not good, why would they endorse anything that is uh, 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 supportive of those practices. For instance, Marriott Company, they have a Marriott Center up there at BYU. I mean, they have more bars and porn in those hotels than you can believe. Why would they be so behind that? And it really, when it really comes down to, uh, my good friend Dennis last night said this, it comes down to money. It's all about the money with the LDS Church. When you take a religion and they say you have to pay tithing to get your salvation, your exaltation, that is not a church. That is a business. And they have business centers all over. Their, their diocese, their temples are business centers because you have to pay tithing to enter into them. And so every time they put them one up in an area, their tithing revenues go up in that area. It's a business model. And so they're owning these things. They don't care. They don't care. Most people, they'll justify. If they can justify this... If they can justify this, they can justify owning Coca-Cola. Right? Yeah. All right, my friend. Thanks for watching. Take care. Yeah. Bye-bye. We have Mike in Hershey, Pennsylvania. Mike, you're on Heart of the Matter, my brother. Hey, howdy, partner. How you doing, man? Pretty good. Just wanted to call in to say God bless you, first of all. And thank you for all you've done for me, for the listeners, for everyone who watches your show. Um, you're just truly an amazing man at spreading the message and truth of Jesus Christ. Hey, thank you for that. The best compliment I could ever receive, uh, someone who spreads the gospel. Michael, will you tell the audience really quickly, you got really about a minute and a half, tell them about your history and what happened. I've grew up as a uh, Celtic pagan my entire life. Parents, grandparents, great-grandparents were all pagans. Um, married a woman who was a fallen Mormon 
and uh, had a child, and her parents were are very devout Mormons. Started looking into what they were trying to teach my son as he was growing up, and came across your show on YouTube. Started listening, uh, objected to it a lot, thought it was pretty funny. After a while, it started, you know, just watching and sinking in. You challenged me to ask God into my heart. I thought it was a complete joke. I thought this is this is just ludicrous. But I took you up on your challenge. I, I asked him in. It took uh, a good month or so. It didn't happen right away. But uh, it, it, one day it just it just snapped, and I, I fell to my knees, and I was broken. I was humble. I, I realized just how weak I am in, in my flesh and in my life and how much I need Jesus Christ in my life. And you were that sign on the road, that dirty little sign that says, wrong way, go the right way, and, and Jesus is the right way. And I thank you for being that little sign. I'm always glad to be the dirty little sign, Michael. <laughs> hey, man, your, your story inspires me. I will take your email and read it. The dialogue we had between each other that went back uh, over email for those times. And you just help when things get tough. You really inspire me. I praise God for your willingness to be humbly broken before our King, Michael. Praise God. Amen. Amen, brother. Thanks so much, my brother. Talk to you later. Keep up the great work, Sean. Thanks. Bye-bye. Uh, we've got a few minutes left. Before we close, I think I need to make some things clear. Um, one thing that led to my break from Mormonism is I could never feel genuine or authentic as an active member. I couldn't openly discuss my doubts, my criticisms. I couldn't explain to people that I wanted to sin in certain ways. And I couldn't disagree with authority when I thought they were wrong. So while I was certainly in search for God and truth all those years, I was simultaneously in search for freedom and uh, to live authentically and to be able to express myself. Well, when I came to the Lord, know the Lord, I was freed from all those confines and um, when we first started doing the show, I insisted on being at complete liberty with who I was, what I believed was true, how to teach it. And I fought for that uh, with everybody. Um, what I'm about to say is really important for you to understand. Please hear me. I am wholly supportive, yes, supportive of any person on earth to allow them to believe exactly as they want to believe. Uh, I make this stance because I'm convinced that's how God is. He believes in absolute freedom, total freedom, uh, even the freedom for people to choose to go to hell if they want. Therefore, I have no issue at all with anyone who wants to worship a false god, who wants to worship themselves as God, who wants to try and become God, who wants to be a Mormon or a Buddhist or a Catholic or a Protestant, uh, even an atheist. That's uh, their personal choice. Uh, and if they want to go that way, have at it. Uh, I grieve at the short-sightedness, and I'll try to speak to you uh, from a biblical perspective, but you will always be my friend. Um, because I have done the majority of my Christian maturing and dematuring here on the air for about six years, you have seen and been able to witness the ebb and flow of my personality, so to speak. Uh, of late, I've been experiencing some frustration and I know it's revealed itself here on the show. And my frustration stems from several facts of which I want to kind of explain before we close here. I'm frustrated at being wrongly perceived. I know that happens, especially with what we do. I'm thought of as being a, a, a ranting evangelical, a raving fundy, unloving, uh, dogmatic, 
uh, hateful, all those things. I'm frustrated because those things are not part of my character, uh, unless you're irritating me on the road. Uh, I choose, um, I do not close my heart and hands to anybody who differs with me in terms of anything. I don't. Uh, lifestyle, beliefs, religion. Believe whatever you want. I don't care and will never attack you for your personal choices. Well, if that's true, Sean, why do you attack Mormonism and their doctrines? Right up alongside of the freedom I believe we should all have, I place truth. And I place knowing and speaking the truth at a very high premium. If a Mormon calls the show and says, Sean, uh, I disagree with you. We believe Jesus is our brother, our elder brother. We believe he was created. We believe he and Satan were brothers. We believe that you have to go through the temple to you know, live with Heavenly Father again. Uh, we believe that you have to pay tithing. We believe you have to keep the Sabbath day to uh, keep it holy. We believe you have to do all these things in order to be saved. Uh, we believe you have to earn your salvation. And, and I disagree with you. I would say that's fine. Thank you for calling. Thank you for being honest. If that caller was to say, but we're Christian, they're going to have a fight. Because it leads other people away from freedom and into bondage, and it's not true. And on those things, for the freedom of personal thought and for, the, and for truth, there has to be a war waged. So I am not fighting you for the truths you possess. You, don't, you misunderstand. I will fight you on the lines for um, the lies and the deceptions that you will try to pass off here on the program. You have three responses, but we're running out of time here, when you're attacked and you're attacked and you're attacked for your person, your thoughts or whatever. You have three responses. You can fear, crawl up, drink, take drugs, go to whatever, and fear, shut up. You can fight, which is what I've been doing, and it's not been really right in the tone I've been doing it, and I don't like it, or you can turn to your faith in God. And I need to repent on the air. I've done it a few times over the years for starting to fight too much. I need to step back and put it in his hands. It's always been in his hands. And to trust that he is my God and King, just like he is yours if you want him to be. We'll see you next week here on Heart of the Matter. Mm -hmm.